welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. After World War II, the globe was divided in half between the capitalist West and the communist Soviet Union. Even though no shots were fired during the Cold War, the intelligence agencies of these two spheres were constantly vying for critical information that could give their side an edge. In the United Kingdom, Donald McLean graduated from the right school. He attended the right university. He came from good British stock and he entered public service just as his country desperately needed intelligent and capable young men to help combat the rise of fascism in continental Europe. Donald McLean was also a Soviet spy. My guest on the podcast today is Roland Phillips, and he is the author of A Spy Named Orphan, The Enigma of Donald McLean. Roland went into publishing on graduating from Cambridge, and until recently he was the publisher of the author John Murray. He has edited leading novelists, politicians, historians, travelers, and biographers. A Spy Named Orphan, his first book, arises from a lifelong connection to Donald McLean and Roland's grandfather, who was Roger Mackins, McLean's boss at the British Foreign Office. Roland is currently working on a new book about the Special Operations Executive, the Double Cross System, Collaboration and Resistance in the Second World War. He joins me today from the United Kingdom via Skype. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hi, Roland. Welcome to the show. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. Glad to have you. Um, so you're the author of A Spy Named Orphan, The Enigma of Donald MacLean. And uh, first off, let me uh, applaud you on writing a very interesting and engrossing book. It, it was very captivating. I felt like I was reading a John Le Carre novel. Oh, well, that's wonderful to hear. Um, it, was, it, was, um, a, it was a marvelous subject for me to find for my first book. And it really came about um, because I, I have a lifelong connection to, to McLean and um, through my grandfather was his uh, boss in the uh, British Foreign Office, the equivalent of the American State Department. So you have a personal McLean, connection. So I have a personal connection. And when I was told that the um, papers, the long delayed um, government papers were coming out into the National Archives, I thought, uh, now's the moment to start start work on this book. It's my first book. I spent um, 32 years as a publisher's editor um, before deciding to strike out and write instead. One of the most enjoyable authors I edited was indeed John Le Carre, so, um, so I feel um, sort of in tune with the spy book world. Now, in uh, researching this, uh, you mentioned that a lot of documents have been declassified recently. Uh, how long ago was that? Yes, at the end of 2015. I started the book in the middle of 2015. At the end of 2015, uh, the, a lot of the secret, British Secret Service and Foreign Office papers were put into the National Archives. <clears throat> Somewhat overdue, um, I like to think they'd held them up because the story they told was of such um, government incompetence, really, um, that they were embarrassed by these papers. But it, it, that I, I'll never be able to get to the bottom of whether that's why they were in so late. 
But um, but they were a tremendous um, asset to me, not least because when McLean defected in, in 1951 to the Soviet Union, uh, the government was so shocked, everyone was so shocked that this incredibly accomplished diplomat should have should be a spy and a defector, that they really went right back through his life, unpicking all his life to try and work out what had gone on. So all this was was laid before me in the um, in the National Archives. This is some of the first, um, your book is some of the first available, publicly available research on what MacLean did, McLean did. Uh, Yes, in in the detail, the the broad strokes were known, but the the detail wasn't. And what in particular was never fully known was the uh, the the hunt for the spy. Once they knew there'd been a spy in the Washington British Embassy in Washington in between 1944 and 1948, uh, uh, the hunt for him uh, was was the was the very drawn out frankly incompetent affair, largely because they didn't, um, the British Secret Service and Foreign Office uh, didn't um, believe that one of their own could have been a spy. So they were looking in all the wrong places. But that was the, the, the gems in the papers were as they continued to fail to catch their man when uh, he was staring them in the face all the time. All right, well, let's go back to the very beginning for McLean. Uh, you start out with his prep school, um, and you contend that the way he was brought up in, in this somewhat elite school kind of primed him to be a spy. Yes, I think his schooling and his family background, and his um, father was a very austere Presbyterian lawyer and politician, um, no smoking or drinking, the house, family prayers. He instilled in his children the need to follow their conscience, um, by which he meant their duty to God. Um, but uh, his son Donald took it a, a different way. And then his school was a, a school called Gresham's, very progressive school, uh, um, on the edge of England um, in in. Norfolk, and uh, that had a very odd um, disciplinary system called the honor system, whereby people, the boys, they were all boys in those days, were meant to give themselves up if they transgressed uh, one of three rules. And the rules were not to smoke, not to swear, and not to think impure thoughts, which is an extraordinary rule to have and to say to boys, you have to. Um, Surrender yourself for, for disciplining, if you if you do that, and um, the other if you didn't surrender yourself, your uh, fellow students could persuade you to surrender yourself, or if that didn't work, they could shop you. And uh, W. H. Auden, the poet, was a year ahead of Maclean in this school, and he wrote a piece saying, uh, if anyone wants to know why I'm a communist. It's because uh, I was brought up in a fascist regime by which he meant the school. But I contend that that also, if you're, a, he was the first uh, generation of, of McLean's to go to a private school. His father had been brought up in very humble circumstances indeed. And he was certainly the first 
likely to go to university. He was a brilliant student. And I contend that as he, uh, the pressure was on him to shine at school and shine he did in, in every area, sporting and academic. Um, yet he would have known this this other disciplinary system was was ridiculous. So I think he learned to keep his true beliefs buried while on the outside being a conformist, uh, which was how he led his career in the Foreign Office, a great conformist, uh, brilliant diplomat in the making. Uh, yet at the same time, he he was giving everything away he could according to his conscience. And that conscience, which was instilled in him by his father, by his school, um, took him to some very dark places we'll come on to talk about. But he, he stood by it right to the end of his life. So he had very little opportunity to express himself, and the overbearing nature of this system just encouraged him to bury things. I think it did. Yes, exactly. And 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 his true belief, yet at the same time, to live by his true beliefs. So hide and but live by his true beliefs. And then in the in the um, times he's brought up in, and when he went to Cambridge um, in 1931, of course Hitler was on the rise. Fascism was on the rise. Uh, it was the middle of the depression. Um, he he saw the hunger marches by which the starving, literally starving workers of the north of England marched on London to to um, take their plight before the government, um, and and Maclean saw these. And so these other uh, these external factors turned him towards communism, in common with many other of his. Um, colleagues at that time, uh, I mean, his fellow students at Cambridge and, and elsewhere. And I think it was the combination of this following his conscience and uh, the need to fight fascism uh, um, led him quite naturally to communism. And then when he came to bury his communism as a spy, these other factors came into play, his, his childhood and schooling. Now, living in the, the post-Cold War world, we, we tend to think, especially living in the West, of communism as an enemy ideology. Mm -hmm. But that really wasn't the case in the 1930s, especially in university, was it? No. Communism was, of course, quite, quite new. It was um, the Russian Revolution had only happened 15 years earlier. And it seemed pretty ideal. Um, particularly compared to what was going on in in Europe, of of um, as as Hitler seized Austria and later Czechoslovakia, and this and the um, stormtroopers started. I mean, the brutality that was clearly leading uh, Europe to war. Whereas communism was a religion of of uh, was a. Uh, organization of peace, McLean believed, and others believed, that it uh, advocated peaceful cooperation, no divisions between people. And right to the end of his life, he maintained that communism was the route to peace. It was what, after he defected, his wife told his sons that um, his their father had gone to live in Russia because he believed in world peace. And it was, and we have to remember, it wasn't until we knew about the 
horrors of Stalinism, the purges and so on in the later 1930s, that, that anyone realized it wasn't uh, a peaceful organization. I mean, it wasn't fun. British people, many British people who went to Russia uh, didn't see um, people with higher living standards than at home. But, but for a theorist like McLean, it, it seemed to be the only peaceful outcome. And it, it, it seems in reading the book that he almost did have a bit of a religious fervor in his, his belief in communism. I think that's right. I mean, he was brought up in this very religious household. Uh, he, he himself was not a believer in God, uh, but he took the, that, um, the fervor that he'd seen in his father and the belief in the conscience, follow your conscience at all costs, their father used to say to them. And he took that into into communism. All right, so he attended uh, Cambridge in, in the 1930s, uh, and then McLean was recruited by the Soviet government, and he became known, uh, part of what was known as the Cambridge Five. Uh, yes. Can you describe this group a little bit? Uh, I, studying history, wasn't really familiar with it. I, I was exposed to it through, through a novel. Um, can you explain for the audience what the Cambridge Five well, were? This was a, yes, the Cambridge Five were a group of spies. Uh, I think we, we, they were they were communists at Cambridge together, as were many many other people, um, and they but they took communism on after Cambridge when most of their fellows gave it up and went into the professions, and I think the um, to look at the Cambridge Five we need to look at their recruiter who was a brilliant man called Arnold Deutsch, who was Viennese, and uh, was a great psychologist and Deutsch realized two things. First of all, that because of the rise of fascism and the depression, the early 1930s, you could recruit uh, as spies, ideologues, uh, purists, as it were. You, you didn't have to, as before and after, it wasn't to do with blackmail or bribery or any of those other things. You could recruit people who genuinely believed in the cause. He also, Deutsch, realized that if you could get people young enough um, uh, at the great universities, um, Oxford and Cambridge in, in Britain, then they could pass almost unnoticed into the professions where they would give, a, give away the secrets in time of those professions. And any youthful um, communist uh, outburst could be put down to to youth and high-spirited students. And he, first of all, um, uh, recruited Kim Philby, who'd married a Viennese communist who, um, who was the year above uh, McLean at Cambridge. He, Kim Philby had married a Viennese communist, and that's how he'd come to Deutsch's attention. And uh, at that point, McLean was due to go into the um, wanted to go to Russia to teach English to, to Russians and, and live the communist dream himself. But Philby, his Cambridge friend, suggested to him that he could be much more use. He, he got a very brilliant degree in languages if he went into the foreign office and worked undercover and Maclean leapt at this. So the first two of the Cambridge Five were Kim Philby, who became very senior in the Secret Service, Donald McLean, who became very senior in the Foreign Office. The next one to be recruited was uh, Anthony Blunt, 
who became uh, the the uh, the kings and then the queens when the king died, the king's keeper of pictures, which uh, although that isn't a position that makes you privy to many state secrets, it excited the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. Guy Burgess, who was um, with McLean and Philbert Cambridge, who became who went into the BBC and then into the Foreign Office, and John Cancross, also at Cambridge, who went into the Treasury and then worked at Bletchley Park, the great decoding place in the war. So Deutsch, by his... So those were the Cambridge Five. So Deutsch, who was so clever at uh, recruiting uh, and spotting what he needed for a spy, managed to penetrate the Foreign Office uh, Secret Service, MI6, uh, the Royal Household, the BBC, and the Treasury. So he was pretty good with his. So those were the Cambridge Five, and and Deutsch was brilliant. Brilliantly picked them at the age of twenty-one. All these people. Did the members of the Cambridge Five know about each other? Uh, McLean knew, obviously, knew about Philby because Philby had recruited him, and he knew about Burgess. Um, Cancross probably didn't know about any of them. Blunt knew about Burgess. Uh, Philby probably knew the lot because he was the first, but they were kept very much apart. And indeed, that would throughout um, the Russian spy network, they took great care to keep their agents apart. Uh, but he certainly, they never uh, sat and um, shared any um any spycraft together um except um philby and burgess did right at the end share the house in in the united states which was there in the end philby's undoing but uh, so they they may have known about each other but they were certainly kept as far apart as could be all right so it sounds like the russians were able to penetrate a, a wide swath of, of the british government um, yeah. So McLean specifically, what kind of intelligence work did he do for the Russians while he was in the Foreign well, Office? Well, he, he went in, when he went into the Foreign Office, he was told he would be a sleeper agent. In other words, he would be activated when he got high enough up. But because he went in right at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, the first great struggle between communism and fascism in Europe, Moscow were obviously incredibly interested by that. So he was immediately giving away what the British, who didn't intervene in the Spanish Civil War, so saw both sides giving away all the detail of that. Then he was posted to Paris in 1938, where he gave away all the um, telegrams to do with the build-up to war. He arrived in Paris just the day after the Munich Conference of 1938 and left after the Nazis had taken uh, France. Um, So he was able to supply all the early days of the war. He was then in London, where I don't think he would have been able to give that much of interest to the Soviets. But his great uh, period was 1944 to 8, when he was in the uh, British Embassy in Washington, where we know he gave away all the um, negotiations for the end of the war conferences, Yalta and Potsdam, because he saw all the telegrams between Churchill and Roosevelt where, for example, they agreed what their um, hold line would be for the borders of Poland. So there's one exchange of telegrams where uh, Church and Roosevelt say they want the borders of Poland, new, new Poland, to be in a certain place. 
But if Molotov, the Russian foreign minister, insists, we'll move them 200 miles to the west. So Molotov knew he only had to insist to get a lot more Polish territory than he would have done. That's one example. He gave away all of that. He gave away after the war. He was on an extraordinarily secret committee um, in the Atomic Energy Commission. He was one of only two Britons on it, which controlled the uh, Allied supply of atomic uh, and uh, uh, weapons, atom bombs. So McLean, for example, was in charge of sourcing the uranium, which came from the Congo, which was a Belgian territory. So it's um, not like he's some kind so of low-level bureaucrat. Absolutely not. No, he was going right to the top of the foreign office. They really trusted him, and he gave away all this material. So he gave, was giving away the atom secrets before the Soviets had the bomb, for example, and um, was incredibly important. And indeed, when his time in Washington was up, I found a, a letter from him in the file saying, please, could he have an extra tour of duty? because they wouldn't want to hand on his secret work to anyone else. And his secret work was, he meant the atom bombs, but now, reading it now, of course, it um, has, it's a double entendre for him to say that. So that, that was the great period of his um, espionage. And that really goes a long way in, in shaping what would happen in the Cold War going forward. It did. It absolutely did. So it shaped... The borders of Europe and uh, the way the, the Cold War started, the ter- ter- territorial. It also, I believe, gave Stalin the confidence um, to build his bomb, which he tested two years ahead of anyone in the West's expectations. I think it did some good. He was able to give away during the Berlin blockade when the Soviets um, cut off uh, Berlin, half of which was. Um, run by the West, and um, the the Americans did uh, some saber-rattling and uh, said they wouldn't be frightened to use atomic bombs, and um, McLean was able to uh, tell the Soviets that, in fact, they didn't have the atomic capability they were claiming, which I think uh, meant Stalin sort of back... It stopped the, the Berlin blockade being ramped up into something more frightening than it was. Um, so he did a lot of good. But no, he did shape the early Cold War, there's no question. He had several code names over the course of his spy career. Um, mm. They start out calling him Orphan, as handlers do. Um, yeah. How did he get that name, Orphan? And uh, what did tradecraft well, uh, look like between Deutsch, him and his handlers? Yes. Well, Deutsch um, was very gifted at giving good, apt code names, and Orphan fitted McLean, I, I feel it's why I used it in the title of my book, because he was essentially a lonely figure. Uh, after his father died in his first year at Cambridge, that was when he became a sort of rabid, outspoken communist. Before that, he, he tamped it down, I think, out of respect for his father. And I think Deutsch recognised in him this slightly... Uh, lonely figure wanting to prove himself, wanting to be praised uh, for his work and so on, and um, which was what Deutsch and, and the other handlers gave him. So that, that first handler, extraordinarily enough, when I came to research this, uh, the Foreign Office turned out not to have a security officer until uh, 1940. 
So he was able every evening to fill his briefcase with documents. He would take them, he would meet uh, a handler, his handler on the street corner, hand over his briefcase. They'd be taken away and photographed at night and um, his briefcase given to him the next morning. So it couldn't have been easier in those in that first year. He, he literally he just would, walked out the front door with whatever documents he, walked he wanted. Out the front door with whatever he wanted in his briefcase. There was no, there were no checks at all. There, what was what is extraordinary about um, when I came to to look into all this is the degree of trust. Really, right up until he defected, people were saying, "No, he's one of us. He went to the right school. He went to the right university." Uh, um, we, he, he couldn't possibly be a spy, and they didn't expect they they didn't they didn't know about spies really. I suppose it's true to say they certainly didn't think they'd be a man in a in a um, double-breasted suit who'd who'd been to Cambridge. The spies there were were giving away plans from of how what was in our aeroplanes and things. They would they were. Uh, workmen in in dockyards who were bribed, certainly not these these senior patrician diplomats. But McLean was such a, a productive spy in his first years that they gave him a handler of his own, um, who was a woman called Kitty Harris, um, who'd been married to Earl Browder, who was secretary of the American Communist Party at the time, and. Um, Extraordinarily enough, she and McLean started having an affair that lasted until his marriage three years later. So, and the Russians found out that uh, the 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 person Kitty was sleeping with with um, the mole, which was a ter- huge security risk, conflict but of interest, completely. Absolutely right. Yes, and and what else she might be telling him that were he arrested, he could give away, or if he became a double agent. I mean, the, the, the ramifications were terrible. But when they found this out, instead of recalling her and dropping McLean, and probably being recalled in 1937-8 would have been um, an execution for her, um, they, McLean was so vital to them that they let things ride. Indeed, when he was posted to Paris, they sent her with him. And uh, they put up with this this terrible breach of tradecraft uh, because he was so important to them. Can you talk about just how productive he was? Some of the numbers that you share in the book are just staggering. They are staggering, yes. There was one year when, um, I can't remember the exact number, but it was over 4,000 uh, documents did over. I mean, really extraordinary numbers, by far the most productive um, of the Cambridge spies, certainly, um, because he had access to all this material. I mean, everything went through the Foreign Office in, uh, in those days, and still does indeed. And London was the diplomatic hub of the world, and then Washington post-war, the diplomatic hub of the world. So he was always the man in the right place to see everything. And everyone trusted him. Everything was shown to him. He was able to take it all away with him. He also had a prodigious memory. Um, And one of the things that made him a very good diplomat was his ability to take in a vast amount of material and synthesize it down into uh, one or two pages for his um, bosses. And when 
when there was security involved later on in the war, this memory served him very, very well because he was able um, to read the documents and then um, boil them down in the days when he couldn't smuggle them out as they were, he was able to, to praise them in a very effective way. He's uh, advancing very well in both his, his public professional career and in his espionage career. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about his personal life a little bit. Uh, at the beginning of World War II, um, he actually gets married. How, how does having a marriage uh, affect his career as, as a spy? Well, it was a very um, extraordinary... He, uh, he, he met his wife after the war started. His wife was American. I think she... Uh, my theory about her is that she rather loved the, the danger aspect. She should have gone home to America. Her, her sister had from Paris. Um, but she'd stayed on against the embassy advice. Um, and it was the first winter of the war when they met. And McLean later said that, that she wasn't, she was called Melinda, uh, that she wasn't at all interested in him, thought he was a, a stuffed dirt uh, British diplomat, which indeed on the outside he was. And to make her um, interested in him, he actually told her he was a spy. Again, a huge risk to take, but it, it worked. And, um, and that's when they fell in love. She still, I think, courted danger to such an extent that she wouldn't... The only black mark on his Foreign Office file is that he wasn't on hand to evacuate the British Embassy from Paris because he was off getting married three days before the Nazis marched into Paris. They then got out of France, really, on the last available boat. Um, Before he met Melinda, he was still involved with Kitty Harris, which, as I say, the the Russians were putting up with. Um, she had to be dropped as the girlfriend. She thought that there'd been some change in him. Mm-hmm. And then he told her that, uh, indeed, he'd met Melinda, and that was a change. Um, so uh, Kitty had to be dropped, which coincided with his coming back to London and and they would have had another handler then. But I think Melinda gave him the courage. I mean, she stood by him through some terrible um, behavior and events, which we'll come on to. And I think she gave him the, the courage to carry on being a spy. And so I think it, it gave his career um, as a spy solidity, as it were. He starts to wear down after a while and you one theme that is in the book pretty prominently is a growing alcoholism how did that affect him? yeah well that i think started to show itself in um in america really after the end of the war when so what of course russia was our ally and and the americans ally in the war however where we were of them and their post-war plans. But at the end of the war, when the Cold War started, that was suddenly, for the first time, McLean was working not only uh, secretly and illegally, but for two different sides. And he was in America, his wife's country, and that felt to him like the triumph of capitalism over his beloved communism. And the first reports of his heavy drinking 
are in 1945-46 when he gets very drunk at Washington dinner parties, some quite grand ones with the owner of the Washington Post and so on, and and starts to say pretty terrible things about America and about capitalism. And and it's sort of it's extraordinary to think that these are his wife's countrymen he's 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 saying these terrible things about. So the the cracks first start to appear at the beginning of the Cold War, but he very much keeps it together. There are one or two stories that um it happened dinners. But he's still this superb diplomat in the day. Things get really bad in 1948 when he is posted to Cairo as number two in the British Embassy. And the situation in Cairo is that it was a king. It was run by King Farouk, who was a terrible, corrupt man. We, the British, were. It was. It was in effect a colony. We were propping up this corrupt regime. It was the first time. Spain had seen firsthand real poverty uh, in Egypt, and uh, he was confronted with everything he hated: uh, the, uh, the capitalist regime uh, being propped up by the West. Also, at this time, he was neglected more by Moscow, who, of course, had loved all his material from Washington, um, but Moscow didn't understand that Cairo was actually an incredibly important place, the sort of fulcrum of the Middle East, and ignored him rather. They didn't we don't even know the name of his handler at this point. Um and he in nineteen forty eight, soon after he went there, wrote to Moscow saying, I've had enough of being a spy. I I I'd like to be taken to Moscow now. Um I'd like to defect. And this was ignored. And I think this is when his drinking becomes really out of control. He's found on more than one occasion in a public park in Cairo in the middle of three in the morning without his shoes on, asleep on a bench in blackout. He can't remember how he got there. Um, he, uh, this sort of outspoken behavior we hear about night after night. And yet, he always, as his friend Philip Toynbee said, put his armour on and would appear in the office and would be nothing short of heroic. And none of this got onto his file. 1949, the first really terrible incident happens when he takes a boat party up the Nile um, and gets very, very drunk, and there's a scuffle on the banks of the Nile, and he breaks a fellow British diplomat's leg in, in several places. And the diplomat has to go back to London. Uh, McLean goes on holiday the next day. And again, I was astonished to see none of this appeared on his file, in his personnel files in Whitehall. But the alarm bells are certainly ringing for Melinda and I hope for the reader of my book. And then the final act a year later, by which time his alcoholism is, is way out of control, um, involves he and a journalist friend of his breaking into the American ambassador secretary's flat in Cairo, thinking it belonged to a friend of theirs, um, looking for drink, having been drinking all day, and trashing the place, um, breaking her bath into 
with a great heavy mirror they took off the wall, throwing her underwear around, all that, and passing out. And the day after this, Melinda goes to the British ambassador and says, I think um, Donald's having a nervous breakdown, needs to go home. The British ambassador says, yes, of course. The whole thing is hushed up. He makes a call to his American colleague and says, poor man's not well, we've sent him home. Again, none of this appears on his file. So that's the um, the height of his alcoholism. He has six months sick leave and then says to the Foreign Office, right, I'm ready to come back to work, but I don't think I should have another foreign posting. So they make him head of the American department just at the beginning of the Korean War. And uh, so extraordinary. Still, they've been looking for a spy named codenamed Homer, which was his final codename in America, for a year or more by now. But they still couldn't believe it would be him. So they give him this very responsible job. So I think as the his two sides, his his diplomacy and his espionage or his patriotism and his communism start to pull apart in the Cold War. That's when he becomes Jekyll and Hyde in in deep alcoholism. There's a record of him uh, shouting to a friend of his, what would you say if I told you I was a communist, have been all my life? This is That's on his foreign office file, just says Donald up to his old tricks again in handwriting underneath it. And um, and it, it was tearing him apart. And he was desperate, I think, to be exposed. He'd asked to be taken to Moscow. He was shouting this stuff out at parties. And I think his defection was a great relief to him uh, when it happened. And interestingly, he was sober when he, um, I mean, he, he didn't stop drinking altogether, but he was, there are no more reports of alcoholic breakdowns when he's in Russia. He He's able to work hard in a foreign policy institute. He's He's a single man, he's a united man again. Um, as opposed to one torn in half. Yeah, he he's a very um, psychologically complex character as you read about him in the book. He he's got a bridge mm. so many different um, different lives and different different I- ideologies. I it's understandable why it affected him the way it did. I I think so too, and I feel um, I think in in what I didn't expect to find think when I wrote the book was how, although he was a, a undoubtedly a traitor and all of that, was I came to admire almost his um, strength of conscience and unity and the fact that he did continue to believe in communism even as it nearly destroyed him. They were looking for a man named Homer. Um, yeah. But they couldn't put together who that person was. Well, they they knew that Homer had seen some really important documents because it was an American operation called Venona that um, decrypted a lot of espionage material. I mean, it was Venona that uncovered the Rosenbergs, for example. Um, a lot of material, um, the telegrams going to to communications data Moscow during the war. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, so, and they realised that there'd been a spy agency called Homer very early on, and that Homer was sending pretty high-grade stuff, for example, the telegrams between Churchill and Roosevelt before the Elder Conference I mentioned earlier. And um, the immediate assumption, once uh, the Americans had told the British that this they, they, they'd been the spy in the embassy, and they knew it was coming from the embassy because they the um, transmitter, the Soviet transmitter, had left on the Foreign Office serial numbers, so they knew it was coming from, from the embassy. Um, their first assumption, and there's a piece of, uh, there's a memo from the head of security at the Foreign Office, was it can't be a senior man. We must look at any secretaries who had a nervous breakdown. So from the start, they were saying none of our chaps would be, could, would be capable of spying because we, you know, we know them, we know their... Um, background. So they were looking in the wrong place for the start from Homer. They began to change their mind in about 1949, um, early 1950, in fact, when they, as I said earlier, McCain often preceded material. And they thought, they then thought, well, a secretary wouldn't be able to precede. Um, this accurately, this material. So we better raise our our sights to who it might be. And then at that at that point, McLean's name starts being on various lists of uh, possible spies. Um, MI6, the British Security Service, then send their when they realise it, it's got to be a senior person. They think we better send our best. Um, man to deal with this so they send Kim Philby which is lucky for McLean because Philby is obviously able to obfuscate, he realises exactly who it is and the authorities no idea they're sending another Russian agent no, no, so Philby arrives in April 1950, realises exactly who Homer is um, and says to Moscow uh, centre, what shall I do, and he is told to make sure McLean gets out, because they, if McLean gives away, um, well, he'll give away Philby for a start, who's a very valuable spy. So get McLean out, but also, they say, leave him in place as long as possible, because he's so valuable to us. So Philby thinks the best way of doing this is to seize control of the operation. So he says, now we have to go back a bit to 1938, when there was a defector in a Russian defector in Europe called Walter Kravitsky, who was a very senior um, KGB man in the Netherlands and France, who defected rather than being purged by Stalin. And in 1940, he came to Britain and he told them about a spy in the Foreign Office uh, who, when he'd been to KGB headquarters on leave, they always spoke most admiringly of this spy and he didn't know the spy's name but he knew various things about him such as that he came from an old Scottish family um, that he was under 30 at the time um, that he sat on such and such committee he, he gave away a lot of detail which for now make it for us make it perfectly obvious he's talking about McLean Philby says has anyone looked at the Kravitsky material? Um, 
because he thinks that if he puts this out there, then they will immediately recognise it was McLean and he will be told what the plans are for McLean and can then pass this on to Moscow to get McLean out because he, McLean is obviously going to be caught at some point. So the British look at the Kravitsky material and go completely to the wrong man <laughs> because they, once again, can't believe this, this extraordinarily brilliant diplomat could be under suspicion. So, um, so 1950 goes by with without McLean being identified. Uh, he has his his alcoholic breakdown. He becomes head of the American department, and it looks like he might get away with it. <clears throat> then, in early 1951, a very few words are decoded, which say that Homer will be coming to. New York, or Tyre, as it was codenamed frequently, to visit his pregnant wife. Um, and this was from the first week of McLean being in America in 1944. And that is the giveaway that only McLean had a pregnant wife who was living in New York. So they know it's him. Yet they don't bring him into questioning. First of all, they're absolutely appalled that this this man could possibly have been a spy because again they they still believe that most of them still believe he's he's a true diplomat and um also they can't um try him in court because the venona decrypts are so secret that they can't be used as evidence, and they have no other evidence on him. So they put uh, people to follow him around town, and um, who are very noticeable, because McLean was very tall, and they tended to be rather short, so wherever he went, there'd be this rather shorter man scurrying behind him. <laughs> and um, he, he absolutely knows he's being watched. And... Um, and it's 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 a slightly farcical situation. His wife's about to have another baby, so they think, well, they say we'll bring him in for questioning. We'll give her a chance to have the baby and then bring him in for questioning. We don't want to search his house. Well, he's heavily pregnant. It might be too upsetting. Basically, we drag our feet. We don't want to believe it's him. Um, some of us don't believe it's him. So we, we do nothing. We leave him in place. Meantime, Philby has sent Burgess has been sent back from Washington in disgrace for his, um, his own drunken behaviour, and Philby says, "Right, you've got to get him out of there, out of England." And so, in the week after Burgess comes back to London, uh, they concoct the plan of of how to defect. Then do. Um, a slight footnote to this is that. We're so embarrassed by McLean that even though this is, has been an American operation that's uncovered him, the head of MI6 is in Washington the week after Burgess McLean defected when people don't know, I mean, the public don't know and the Americans haven't been told they've defected. When he's asked by someone in the FBI how they're getting on with finding Homer, he says we've got six or seven people in the frame, but nothing definite yet. So they just cannot bring themselves to say it's this, it's this man. Um, so he was finally caught purely because the uh, his temporary Russian handler 
had uh, given away that his wife was pregnant. And so he is eventually caught. Well, caught's maybe not the right word. He's identified, yeah. but never He's actually identified. apprehended. Yeah. Um, mm. You actually begin your book, the prologue, with his defection and escape from the, yes. US, the UK. Um, it's an interesting story. Yes, so he's been, um, he, he knows he's been identified because of these watchers who've been on him for a month. Uh, he probably knows um, that they're not following him home um, because he lives in the country and MI5 decide it will be too obvious to have people. Um, he, take, he takes train out of London every evening and they think it'd be too obvious to have people in the village where he lives watching his house. So they they sign off at the end of the day. They don't watch weekends, which the Foreign Office aren't told. My grandfather, who's his boss, that McLean's being watched, act as normal. Um, we don't want to rattle him. So when McLean asked for the... Um, they worked on Saturday mornings in those days. When McLean says, could I have Saturday morning off? My grandfather said, Yes, of course, because obviously he can't escape because he's being watched. Um, that last week, <coughs> McLean and Burgess meet several times. McLean is very, very calm, again, which I think is interesting now that Dai is cast and, and he, um, he's come down on the side again to Russia. He's very calm. Um, and um, the, the handler in London is a man called Yuri Moden has found a boat. They assume the ports are all being watched, which oddly they're not. So they, he needs a boat where they don't... He finds a boat that cruises up and down the channel all weekend that doesn't officially put into onto foreign soil onto France. Um, therefore, passports aren't needed to be shown. But... Modin finds out that it does stop at Saint Malo for breakfast um, on the Saturday, um, and the, and books tickets for for Burgess and McLean to go on this boat. So he does a full day's work. It's his birthday, his thirty eighth birthday, um, Friday the twenty fifth of May, nineteen fifty one. He does a full day's work. He has birthday lunch with a friend, who comments that he seems more relaxed and. Uh, jaunty than, than he has done for some time. He goes home to Kent. Uh, Melinda has cooked a birthday supper until I found some family papers of McLean's. It was always assumed Melinda didn't know what was going on, but uh, I, it's quite clear to me now she did. She cooked some supper. Burgess arrives. Uh, Melinda claims later not to know who Burgess was. Uh, after supper, they say we've got to go and visit a sick friend in Andover nearby. Uh, they drive about an hour to Southampton, where they get on this ship at midnight. And that is the last they're seen of um, by a Westerner for five years. They're, they spend... They get they jump ship in Saint Malo at breakfast time, take a train to Paris, uh, take another train from Paris to Bern in Switzerland, where they have to hold up for two days, and two days later get on an aeroplane to Prague. Uh, 
and and dis- and my grandfather when he was criticised for giving um, McLean the day off just has to say nobody told me they weren't being watched at weekends so that's how they get away on a Friday night that's a, a, an incredible story did it not occur to them that he might be a flight risk well this is what I mean about the, the bungling um, throughout is no I think they thought well his wife's going to have a baby in a few weeks and um, he may not necessarily know he's being watched I mean it, it was a a classic um, tale of establishment, trust, and, and bungling, in effect. So what's been the legacy of all this? What's been the legacy of McLean and the Cambridge Five, uh, both for the, the British public and for um, intelligence and government services? I think the legacy of the British public was it was such a shock um, when McLean defected. Um, the word establishment used to mean the ruling class, as it were, was first coined to talk about the people who protected McLean, the political and social network. And it was the first crack in faith in the establishment. I mean, for 100 years or more, um, the British public thought these people know what they're doing, they're honest, they're patriots, um, all of that. And yet, suddenly, people at the heart of the establishment turned out to be traitors. And it was the first cracks in the establishment. That was the single biggest change for um, in the British mindset. And, and how long it after led... did the public learn about this? Uh, Ten days after the defection, um, it broke in the newspapers. And then the missing diplomat was a huge um, case. Really, for the next five years, they didn't reappear until 1956. They were taken to a closed city uh, called Cubisha. No foreigners, no journalists were allowed in. And they didn't reappear until 1956. So there was always this... And Melinda defected and another great shock two years later 1953 with the children um and so the missing diplomats as they were known was a one of the great mysteries and and points of shame so that was the great uh, change for in the british mindset i think politically as i say it affected the shape of europe in particular after the cold war and Attenborough. The intelligence ramifications rumbled on for 30 years or more um, in the colossal mistrust between the British intelligence services and the American intelligence services, all that business about not telling them, not coming clean about our defectors and indeed our spies, and all that was a terrible um, blow to trust. And I think Le Carre's novels of the 70s uh, with that mistrust simmering comes straight from Maclean and Philby um, turning out to be spies. So I think that's the, the really lasting impact. And I think it, it led to a mistrust of the whole um, network. I mean, the, when um, in the build-up to the Second Iraq War, when 
in this country we had what became known as the dodgy dossier, whereby the intelligence services or the government were proved to have misused intelligence material. I think it's just made us feel a lot less safe that these people can be uh, in, in high up positions. And I think what we're seeing in this country now, I don't know if you've been following the uh, the poisoning of the former spy in Salisbury, that the uh, Russians can just come here and the Russians can penetrate Britain to such an extent. Is, is yes, really... yes. Um, Theresa May made that announcement uh, not too long ago um, before we're recording this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and it really woke, I think it woke the world up to just how how deeply the Soviets had, had got into the West. Mm. Um, Roland, thank you for a fascinating discussion. Where can people get your book if they want to read more? Uh, they can get it uh, online from uh, from any online bookstore, and I hope in um, in bookstores around the country in, in America. Uh, I haven't been there for a bit myself, so I haven't checked the bookstores, but they can certainly get it online. All right. Well, thank you very much yeah. for coming on today. Thank you very much for for excellent conversation, Kevin. Thank you. I want to give another special thank you to Roland Phillips for being my guest today. And I want to thank everyone for listening and for tuning in every couple weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode on Donald McLean, feel free to go back and check out past episodes of the Can't Make This Up History podcast and subscribe to the podcast so you'll know right away when I publish future episodes. If you want to learn more about McLean and the Cambridge Five, head over to this episode's show notes at www.cantmakethisuppodcast.com slash a spy named orphan. There you'll find some of my personal reflections on McLean, a link to Roland's book, as well as additional resources. The Can't Make This Up History podcast is also on social media. You can follow it on Facebook at facebook.com slash can'tmakethisuphistorypodcast and on Twitter at cmtuhistory. I want to say thanks to some new Twitter followers, the Why Is That podcast, the History of Vikings podcast, Lewis, Assassinations podcast, Lego Classicist, and R.W. Clark espionage author. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he writes spy novels. I'll have to check that out. Thanks to everyone for all their support. That's it for me. I'll see you here again next time for our next episode, which will air on November 9th.